Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we read in your holy scriptures, when you have revealed yourself in those moments that we treasure, such as in Isaiah, where a glimpse of your holiness was available for your prophet to see, the vision was staggering indeed, and made him cry out in anguish for his own sin, and also cry out to the only one who could redeem him, sanctify him, justify him, and set His course to glorify You. We want to join with the voices of all of the saints that have gone before, singing this morning, We exalt Thee. We want to hear, we want to listen, we want to understand and to love and to appreciate the great revelation of Your character, of Your holiness, of Your salvation, of Your truth that You have bound for us in the pages of Your Holy Word. We long to feast upon this great source of spiritual nourishment to our soul's delight and to the nourishment of our spiritual man. I pray that the effect of this message would be our love for you increasing and our ability to share the gospel also would increase so that you might be glorified in us and glorified through us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. What a privilege to join together in worship and in considering God's holy word this morning. I would encourage you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. And in a moment I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 51 is our text this morning. This psalm, as the title of my sermon today demonstrates, reveals repentance, a heart of penitent confession and dependence on the Lord in light of the realization of sin and hatred for the same and reliance on the Lord alone to justify and to sanctify. It is, that is, repentance in high definition. Psalm 51, the context we'll read in a minute as we read the title, is written from a man who was so wholly acquainted with these words that we see him in Scripture as a classic example of what it looks like to, yes, have a heart after the Lord's, as David was called, a man after God's own heart. But also David exemplified by dramatic uh, and evident means and in his own testimony what it looks like to repent as well. So stand with me, if you would, with your Bible open to Psalm 51. And let's read these verses. I encourage you to follow me as I read verses 1 through 19 beginning with the title. This is the Word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Verse 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. Your study Bible, if you have a study Bible, may have a section following Psalm 51, as mine does, that explains the nature of sin original sin, and what is the essence of sinful man ever since Adam. That is the real root issue as it relates in this psalm to specific violations of God's holy law that David cries out to be saved from. If your Bible includes a little segment like that, it's drawing your your attention to something that has been considered a classic example of what repentance looks like. As we remark in this message, in its title, Repentance in High Definition, if you will. Psalm 51 in the Latin would be a great text for a locus classicus review of what is repentance. Locus classicus just means that classic place most clearly delineated where the standard on the unique and classic example of what repentance, penitent faith, repentance and crying out in anguish of sin for the salvation of the Lord looks like. This song is fourth in a series of what uh, students of the Bible have noted uh, could be identified in category of penitent psalms, that is, confession songs. It is the fourth in a series of seven. Psalm 51 joins, that is, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, those three we've, we've studied and prior weeks as our psalm series has delivered them to us in order. In addition to Psalm 51, the penitent psalms are Psalm 102, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. A great study on your own time would be to read through those psalms closely and to look for the, the parallels, and you'll begin to see some amazing truths and some identities coming to the fore of what it looks like in poetic imagery to have a heart that confesses sin and trusts in Christ, ultimately speaking, as Savior. We'll cover perhaps one or two of those this morning. Psalm 51 
and introduction and greater context, it strikes me, and I'm sure you too, as we ponder its title this morning to the choir master, a psalm of David, and this is the incident that preceded these words, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. I trust you're familiar with the story. This provides the context of this psalm. David provides a great example in his own waywardness and the atrocity of his own sin of what it looks like to fall short of the glory of God. When you consider that, and David as the old author of this psalm, his actions that precede it, and this writing that followed his repentance a year after or so, he committed those horrible crimes and then was convicted through the word of God, through the prophet Nathan. It is absolutely staggering to see the beauty, the clarity, and the purpose of this psalm is truly a God-breathed example. Ultimately, it could never be more clear that the Holy Spirit is the true songwriter here. Because if there was ever a man least qualified to offer truth as to what holiness looks like, it would have been David. In his horrific example of sin, he had exemplified deceit, murder, adultery, betrayal, tyranny, Malice, conspiring to injure another, a stealing, covetousness, and certainly dishonoring parents. You remember the story. Bathsheba was a woman that David lusted and coveted. Come to find out she was married to another of his men. David wanted to add her to his harem. It's not as if he didn't have power, ability, and to gather plenty of wives for himself and so on, but he lusted after this one that he could not have because she was given to another. To remedy the situation, to satisfy his desires, he had his general set Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, in the forefront of the battle, that he might be killed. David was guilty then then of, of murder in this case, as he later describes in this psalm, blood guiltiness. This is certainly not the way Jesse, a man of God, as we read in Scripture, raised his son. David was certainly dishonoring his parents. If you go back to Exodus 20, you can see that David broke nearly all, virtually all, of the commandments in this one act, maybe to the exclusion of breaking the Sabbath. All of the others, though, David had certainly stole, coveted, dishonored his parents. He had besmirched his God. He had borne false witness. He had uh, committed adultery. And, and it was a spectacular example of a horrific grievance against all of these standards of God's righteous rule. So how do we explain How this author, so beset uh, with gross and heinous sins, could write something so amazing when he was so distraught and compromised by this kind of activity. Well, David's pen was guided by the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned. Thus, the stunning and clear and cutting words are come to us by its ultimate author, the Holy Spirit of God, and speak to us clearly, therefore, what it means to repent of our sin and to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. Let's explore this in a little bit more systematic way as we delve into this psalm this morning. I have a heading for you. Psalm 51 illustrates the scope of penitence or repentance, and we can see it in the parallels in the text. So the heading could be as follows. The parallels of Psalm 51 highlight Four things. Number one, the attributes of God. Number two, the wretchedness of sin. Number three, absolution by God. 
And number four, reconstitution of man. The parallels of Psalm 51 highlight the attributes of God, the wretchedness of sin, absolution by God Himself, and the reconstitution of man. Those are my four main points this morning. Let us consider the first one in some detail with two subcategories, mercy and justice. I submit to you that Psalm 51 highlights the mercies of God and His justice. In verse number 1 of our psalm that you have before you this morning, I trust, our author records again, Have mercy on me, O God. The first words from his convicted lips are a plea that God would be gracious, merciful to him. That God would not grant him, give him the punishment he knows his sin deserved. The second line in parallel and similar fashion reads, According to your steadfast love. So far we have two attributes of our great God that David bases his appeal, his mercy And secondly, his steadfast love. To these two, he adds a third in the third phrase of verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Mercy, steadfast love, abundant mercy. He goes on through verse 2. Blot out my transgressions. And then verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. As we look at the parallels we can see that there's a plea to mercy for mercy. Why? Because of David's great transgressions. And so he pleads for God to be merciful and to do what? To blot them out. Mercy, transgression, blot them out. Secondly, if we line up the ideas in typical Hebraic poetic form, he says steadfast love. O Lord, I appeal to your steadfast love that you would wash away my iniquity. And thirdly, I appeal to your abundant mercy that you would cleanse me from my sin. We have the activity of God in blot, cleanse, and washing. We have the nature of His sin in transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And we have the attributes of God, which we're looking at most specifically under point number one, mercy, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. If we explore the Hebrew just a bit, these three words have shades of meaning. And so as David compounds examples, he also compounds shades of understanding underneath God's mercy. The three Hebrew words are as follows. Chanan, chased, and rakam. Chanan, chased, and rakam. Rakam. The first one, Chanan, sacred, or I'm sorry, spared punishment. There is a sense where David appeals to God to spare him the punishment that his transgressions deserve. Please blot out my transgressions so that the punishment may be spared. Secondly, chased. This one should be familiar to you by now. It It is a recurrent theme in the Psalms. This is that beautiful, gospel packed word in the Hebrew that communicates God's covenant loyalty. It is a word that carries with it the hope and the promise that God will never go back on His contracts, commitments, His promises. 
regardless of the failings of David or the other patriarchs or any sinner, for that matter, God remains faithful. Therefore, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has shown in the lineage of His fulfilled promises, His said love, and He will therefore continue to do it through David. I appeal to you, Almighty God, on the basis of your covenant-keeping loyalty to wash me of my iniquity, to wash me of my covenant-breaking. Thirdly, abundant mercy is in view when David uses the word rakam. This is mercy that is overflowing in the sense that only a parent can know. If you want just a fraction of understanding of this aspect of God's attributes and character, think if you're a parent of your love for a child in danger. A little one, a toddler, headed straight for a cliff. What is your impulse? What is your reaction? At the uh, cost of your own life and convenience and limb, you will rush towards that child and pull him or her back from certain danger and death. You will do everything in your power to intervene. You will watch over that little one without regard to the temper tantrum they had 20 minutes prior or even their pattern of resolute obstinance and disobedience to you. There is nevertheless for most parents this paternal uh, reaction, this ingrained love and compassion, this innate sense of care that is so connected to the object of their affections that it can only be described in parallel, at least to some degree, as the love of a parent who has care and concern for their child to one of their little ones in distress. And so to Rakam, David pleads, according to your paternal compassion, cleanse me from my sin. The attributes of God are emphasized in Psalm 51 beginning with His mercies. Verse 1 appeals to His mercy, as we've mentioned, to spare punishment. Of, Of His steadfast love, His covenant loyalty. Of His abundant mercy, His paternal compassion. Verse 4 goes on to reveal a second aspect of God's attributes, a second category of His attributes. And these two must be taken together. And David delivers them Back to back, for good reason. God, while He is merciful, never compromises His justice. Never foregoes judgment for the sake of His mercy. How can they be reconciled, we ask? Of course, the answer is ultimately in the cross. But let us remind ourselves these two aspects of God's character always stand, even in forgiveness, as we read verse 4. David says, Against you, you only, Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Notice the next phrase. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is always impeccable, perfect in His judgments. And His word is always proven true. No exceptions. No escape clauses. No uh, hardships that reached the level of, I'll give you a pass. No, perfect justice, perfect judgments. His word is never compromised, never violated. It is never disobeyed to the impunity of the sinner. 
His justice and his judgments are always satisfied. This is why David knows because he's God's anointed and because he's king, he cannot get away with his sin. If if there was ever a man who thought that he was in a place of leverage, oh, God has staked his future plans on the continuation of my own house. Therefore, I can kind of sin and he'll uh, give me a way. He'll He'll let it give me a pass. He'll overlook it. He'll give me a way out. No, David knows that his sin is only heightened by his anointed position, not lessened to any degree. This is so important, brothers and sisters, in Christ, because the doctrine of God's justice has fallen on hard times in the church, generally speaking. Never in the church, particularly speaking. But the doctrine of God's judgments and har- has fallen on hard times these days. We hear oftentimes gospel presentations that fall short of delivering the attributes of God in their full and comprehensive clarity. Substitutionary atonement, which by the way is a picture of the cross, which the sacrificial system of the Old Testament preceded, which was the essential meaning of the Passover feast, is now often denied in the, uh, through the lips of others who confess, by profession only, I would argue, Christianity. That is, if we lose the concept of a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, God cannot be just in granting us mercy. So how will His justice be satisfied? The way the Old Testament prefigured, we see fulfilled in the New the wrath-absorbing, bearing sacrifice of His Son on the cross. Now here, listen to me. Essentially, theologically, if we lose this truth, Christianity is no longer distinct from the doctrine of forgiveness in Islam. Islam holds sway over the hearts and minds of billions, we are told, people on this planet. They need Christ desperately. If we don't give them Christ, who absorbed the punishment their sins deserved, they have no reason to leave their doctrine of forgiveness. Because Allah forgives. He does so capriciously, however. He foregoes His justice and judgments in granting mercy. There is no crucified Christ as a payment for sins. There is no substitutionary, propitiatory, wrath-absorbing atonement in that false religion. They need Christ, the Christ of Psalm 51. We all need the Christ of Psalm 51. We need the attributes of God thoroughly established in our gospel and understanding as merciful and just. Biblical forgiveness is therefore a both-and proposition. And as against modern heresies, which question these uh, concepts that we see so thoroughly woven through the history of redemption, stands Psalm 51 and the testimony of the rest of Scripture. In part, we could say the following then in summary under the attributes of God. Repentance and high definition, repentance and all of its God-exalting clarity is an appeal to the mercy of God upon His justice otherwise satisfied. Yes, I escape judgment, but it's because my judgment falls on another. Psalm 51 highlights the attributes of God. Highlights His mercy, His steadfast love, His abundant mercy, His justice. It highlights His blameless judgments. 
His inscrutable and undeniable and infallible word. And it highlights, finally, His righteousness, which is a summary term for the same ideas we've already expounded. As David says in 51.14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. Secondly, this, for, this morning, let's, let us consider through the parallels of Psalm 51, the wretchedness of our sin. Yes, the wretchedness of David's sin, but as a representative example of all of our hearts, let us consider how this psalm tells us, speaks to us, lays out for us as a sort of autopsy of the human heart, the horrific, utterly depraved, debased nature of our transgression before an almighty God. Over and again, the terms iniquity, transgression, sin, and I would argue culminating in blood guiltiness are used to describe our condition. As David has said in verse 1, remember, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He goes on, verse 9, Hide your face from my sins. Again, blot out all my iniquities. Do you hear any shades of self-justification, excuses, capitulation on the truth? Any shades of minimizing the situation? No. David is an example of a confession that we should take heed and follow David states very clearly and with a compounding evidence and testimony to the truth that he is iniquitous, he is sinful, he is a transgressor. He goes on to say again in verse 14 that his state of being and the corruption of his soul is described by this term, this law term, the old covenant blood guiltiness. Let us explore these these identifications of sin, the wretchedness thereof, a little closer this morning. First of all, I would have you note uh, two phrases that are relatively instructive and maybe surprising at first glance. First of all, David says, against you, in verse 4, you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. How, How could that be true? Did David not sin against Uriah? Did David not sin against Bathsheba, all of the people of God, in, uh, in falling short of his duty to rule as a king in righteousness? Well, yes, in one sense he did sin against those parties. Yes, and it is a biblical category in one sense to sin against your neighbor. But there's, some, there's, another, uh, there's another idea that is in view here that David is getting at. This, the second troubling phrase or, or phrase that might um, be surprising to us at first glance is in verse 5 where David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David is saying that the essence of his sinful nature preceded his great crimes against Uriah and company and all of the people of God. David is saying that all the way back to my very conception, uh, the nature of my being was iniquitous and sinful from the very beginning. Why does David include this language? Well, I submit to you that these identities of the sinfulness of man are theologically significant. That is to say, David distinguishes between the essential nature of sin, 
and the collateral damage or the effects of sin against a neighbor. Again, David distinguishes between the essential nature of sin and its effects. What is sin? Sin, uh, the way the confessions have sometimes summarized, want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, that language is derived from passages that you could study on your own time later, especially in the book of Romans. Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 7, 7 through 25. Chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Chapter 4, verse 23. And you remember, for instance, in Romans 3, 23, that often quoted, memorized verse, all have uh, uh, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a standard of perfect righteousness, as David has said. His justice is what his, or his justice demands that everyone who would share his presence and favor measure up to that standard. And therefore, by that measure, sin is falling short to any degree of that holiness, that perfection. That is the essence of sin. Now, when David says that this essence of sin in him and in his nature preceded the moment when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, what is he saying? He's saying he's a sinner by nature, and he's affirming the doctrine of original sin. And the point is this. This is evidence of something. This is a far more. That is David's confession in these phrases. David is admitting, he's clearly laying out, that his sin against Uriah, Bathsheba, etc., was far more systemic and serious than a human-to-human grievance. David did not merely sin against a fellow human being. That is just a, a, a sin between two sinners on an equal playing field. The nature of David's sin was so systemic and serious that it was a crime against the holiness of God. Our society, again, let me draw an application here. Our society understands and it condemns here and there. They, they do it with partiality. Here and there, sins against a fellow human being uh, and human trafficking. We won't rest until this injustice is put behind us. Here's another faux one. And economic disparity. We won't rest in our quest for social justice until all human beings have an equal shot. Uh, what's the worst sin in the, pop, in the minds of popular culture you know, uh, in our history? Oh, slavery jumps to mind. Oh, slavery is the original sin of America. Why? Oh, such a horrible crime against another human being. You see, with partiality, we understand a grievance against a fellow human being. But what do we seldom hear in popular culture? Virtually never and, I, unfortunately, virtually, uh, and it's grown, grown more rare from pulpits as well, that the greatest and most, most horrific aspect of sin itself is that it is a crime against God. When David says, against you and you only have I sinned, he is saying that of first priority, of greatest significance, and by infinitely greater horrific measure, not loving the Lord his God with all his heart 
and mind and strength is an atrocity beyond the murder of an entire generation. It's an atrocity far worse, if it could be said, than the genocides of the 20th century. Why? Because the evil is calculated in proportion to the holiness of the object. And God is so holy, and He is so perfect, He is so beautiful in His nature and character, that to slight that, to raise an idol in front of Him, to ignore Him, to go on and live as if you are your own God, is greater than any crime that a human could perpetrate against one or millions of fellow human beings. Don't get me wrong, the second table of the law fully identifies sin against neighbor. And the Bible is very clear that those are atrocious infractions. But they are atrocious infractions first against the Lord and secondly above neighbor. The world would have us elevate each other to God. The greatest crime is to disparage or disenfranchise or, or to stereotype our human, fellow human beings. No. The greatest crime of all is to disparage, to minimize, to ignore, to have false idols before the God who gave you every breath in your lungs. David distinguishes between the essence and the effects of sin. And when he does so, he shows how wretched it truly is. Then David moves beyond there in identifying the wretchedness of his example of this great crime and infraction by invoking the term blood guiltiness. Let's look at this a little more closely. Turn to Leviticus 17 with me, if you would. Leviticus lays out different uh, sacrifices in proportion to different sins. The great message of this book of the law is that any kind of uncleanness is not tolerated in the presence of God. And therefore, even the ceremonial prescriptions of the law speak to the holiness of God in poignant and symbolic form. Um, briefly, before we read a couple verses from Leviticus 17 to illustrate the concept of blood guiltiness, David has said, I'll recall your attention again to Psalm 51.14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. As we parallel this text with this concept from the law, we read in Leviticus 17.1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it into or bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. And here's the important phrase, the consequences of blood guilt. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Perhaps in Leviticus 17, 1 through 4, we are citing the minimal case. That is, even if you uh, offer sacrifices and presume to worship God or sacrifice in your own way, and you break His uh, specific order in so doing, you, along with every murderer, is guilty of something called blood guilt. And what is interesting and evident and fearful in the text is 
if you are condemned with blood guiltiness, you are put away from the people and there is no sacrifice, Levitically speaking, if we could use that term for you. Now, this illustrates the wretchedness of David's sin. Why does David say that uh, there really is no sacrifice where ultimately he can find salvation? Verse 16, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. This is the equivalent of David throwing up his hands and saying, Even if I wanted to go to the temple which hadn't been built yet, even if I wanted to go to the temple of meeting and atone for this sin by bringing the appropriate sacrifice, there remains none for me. I am blood guilty. There is no sacrifice. There is no turtle dove. There's no goat. There's no ram to wash away this sin. Where does does David just turn himself wholly over to a reprobate mind then saying that uh, there is no hope for me? I'm done? No. The Holy Spirit moved David to plea for a sacrifice that transcended the old covenant order. The Holy Spirit, and David uses the term Holy Spirit in verse 11, take not your Holy Spirit from me. David knows, just like Aaron, when he interceded, remember last week, he stood with his censer of incense between 14,500 who had just been justly killed by plague and the remaining people who had committed waywardness in complaining about God's ways and authority. They had denied His word. The high priest Aaron, as a prefiguring Christ, rushed in, actively intervened, and the plague was stayed at that point. This is what David is crying out for. He's crying out for a sacrifice that transcends the old covenant order. David's guilt is compounded. He knows that the Levitical system won't save him. He has an innate faith in the Messiah that will come. He has this heart and this guttural cry that comes forth in his anguish, in his spirit-led penitence, that the Lord might satisfy his sin with the sacrifice somehow cleansing him from blood guilt. But David's wretchedness is heightened by multiples, even as we consider one other aspect. We won't turn there this morning. 1 Samuel 25, however, records another chapter in David's history. There was a woman who intervened on his behalf and saved him from blood guiltiness once. Notice how absolutely reversed this story was. Do you remember Nabal? Uh, owned a vineyard or whatever, wouldn't feed David and his mighty men. David was incensed and was going to kill the man. He was going to violate God's prerogative of jurisprudence and just act lawlessly, crime of passion. This man's wife, Abigail, interceded and said, I plead with you, my Lord. You are the anointed one. Don't do this uh, lest you become guilty of blood guiltiness, lest you be charged with blood guiltiness. God judged Nabal. He was killed. That woman became David's wife. Get this, get this. David had a wife who intervened prophetically, drew his attention to the word of God to spare him from a crime of passion that would have convicted him of blood guiltiness. Now consider the story with Bathsheba. To get a wife, he committed a crime of passion 
and committed uh, and was thus charged with blood guiltiness, taking the life of that woman's husband. Do you see how wretched David's sin is? Now let's make the direct application to ourselves. We have no less excuse in any or the various sins and multiplied sins, too many for us to catalog and count, because we have the Word of God. Fully written out, we have a sealed, a complete canon. We have more revelation than David ever ever had. We have his lesson, both we could learn it the easy way when we look at his, that he learned the hard way, and yet we continue in our sin. Who can save us ought to be our cry from our own wretchedness and blood guiltiness. The answer, praise be to his holy name, is Christ alone. Thirdly, this morning, the parallels of Psalm 51 highlight the absolution by God. Absolution means to be cleansed, to be absolved, to put sins in remission, to remove them, to justify, and to declare innocent by the removal of that charge of an individual who has seen his day in court, if you will. David uses a number of images to demonstrate God's cleansing power, the active role of God himself by his sovereign power intervening to change him, to absolve him of his sin, if you will. He says in verse 1, he pleads, he cries that God would blot out his transgressions. Again, he says, wash me, verse 2. He says, cleanse me, again, in verse 2. In verse 7, he pleads that God would purge him. Again, he says in verse 7, wash me. This language uh, becomes a theme throughout Scripture. The washing of the water of the Word, the cleansing of Christ's blood, the robes of righteousness, The cleansing power of Christ picks up on these pictures. The cry of David is answered and the messianic hope. He says, create, in verse 10, in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. There is cleansing, there is regeneration, recreation in view, born again and thoroughly washed of the deepest of stains. He says, turn not your face from me, in verse 8. He says, blot out, again, my transgressions. Hide your face from my sins, I'm sorry, in verse 9, and blot out all my iniquities. The language of absolution continues. He says in verse 10, as we've read, create and renew, but also he says in verse 12, restore. He uses this language of restoration. To me, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Blot out, washing, cleansing, purging, hiding his face from his transgressions, blotting again, uh, uh, creating a new, renewing, restoring, and salvation. This language is probably familiar to us. Let me go to a reference that we might uh, draw a little deep, more deeply from with some old covenant context that may be newer to us in verse 7. David not only asks that he would be purged, but in poetically, he refers to an implement that is a plant. He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
underneath the absolution of God, we can see two ways that hyssop, at least two ways that hyssop appears in the redemptive historical significance of salvation in the Old Covenant. First of all, I would remind you, you can mark this for further study later, of the Exodus narrative. Exodus 12, verse 22, the commandment was to take a bunch of hyssop and to dip it in what? The sacrificial blood of the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb. Dip the hyssop in the blood of the Lamb and put it where? On the doorposts of the dwelling of all of the residents there. And the angel of death would therefore pass over. Hyssop, therefore, is a picture of the implement that was used to... Uh, as a means of applying the substitutionary blood for salvation. David is crying out that God would grab his hyssop, as it were. Grab your means, O Heavenly Father, of applying substitutionary blood for my salvation and mark me that the angel of death may pass over. Uh, Secondly, hyssop is also a cleansing agent. Not only does it speak to blood applied and the means of applying that substitutionary blood, but also as an agent for ritual cleansing. Again, we turn to our uh, law, our old covenant referent in Leviticus 14. Leviticus 14, very briefly, you uh, will recall that uh, two weeks ago we studied how it was a priestly duty to go and cleanse a house of leprosy. Um, That is a picture of uncleanness, and the priest would have a certain protocol that he must follow to cleanse the home. In uh, 1448, we continue with these instructions. It says, but if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease is not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, for the disease is healed. And for the cleansing of the house, he shall take, here we have agents of cleansing, two small birds with cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop, and shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel of a fresh water, shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop, the scarlet yarn, along with the live bird, and dip them in the blood, the bird that was killed in the fresh water, and shall sprinkle the house seven times. So we see in the picture here that hyssop is also a cleansing agent, and it is associated with blood as well. So when David cries out that God would purge him with hyssop, he is crying out for substitutionary blood to be applied and for him to be cleansed of the leprosy of sin in his being so that he might be, in New Covenant language then, a fitting temple for the Holy Spirit of God. Fourthly, this morning, we've considered the parallels of Psalm 51 which highlight The attributes of God, the wretchedness of sin, the absolution by God. And finally this morning, let us consider reconstitution of man. Or another way to say that, what is the effect of salvation? What was David looking forward to? What is the believer restored unto? There's numerous references that help us understand the expectation of of the effects and the fruit of salvation. Verse 6 would be 1. Behold, again Psalm 51, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. David is crying out that truth would take residence in his inward being. 
that blood guiltiness, that is, would be purged and that it would be replaced with truth, that he would be reconstituted to love the Word of God. You see, he had virtually hated it and separated himself from it for a period of months and months. The Word of God had not convicted him of his sin. It took the prophet Nathan bringing the Word of God to him directly that reawakened his conscience to the authority, the holiness, and the righteousness of God. And now he desires that that truth would remain. And it would convict him of future and existing sins that he might walk rightly before his God. He says, secondly, in the same verse, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Again, may the secret places, my being, my inner constitution, may it be the residence of wisdom. These are things that God promotes, God loves, God sets his affections upon. As David moves forward uh, with more parallels about the reconstitution of man, he prays for a situation where he would be washed, as we've already noted, but to a degree. He wants to be washed in verse 7, to be clean, and further, he says, to be made whiter than snow. There is an expectation in the act of God washing his sins to restore him and indeed advance him to a state ultimately pictured in glorification where sin is foreign to his nature once and for all that he would be whiter than snow. We know this process in our own sanctification, but we look forward to the day where we can dwell in God's presence with no darkness, no shadow of turning, no vestiges of sin anymore. In glory, David understood this, and so he poetically sang of these joyful, hopeful expectations of the gospel. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. He goes on and on. He says, a clean heart and a right spirit are his desire, in verse 10. He says, restore me to your presence, in verse 11, that he would be in association, relationship, fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God, that is the third person of the Trinity, that he would receive the joy of his salvation, verse 12, and that ultimately he would be so thoroughly changed and reconstituted that he could fulfill the great commission. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David is not just looking to have the guilt removed, but he is expecting that God could redeem his life so that he might triumph the great works of God and preach the gospel to others who need to cry out in a broken spirit, and a contrite heart for salvation um, from their own sins. Let's explore just one picture, again, that may be more foreign to us, associated with the reconstitution of man, and it comes in the term uh, etzem, which is Hebrew for bones, in verse 8. David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. In the Hebrew, this term, bones, etzem, is a common uh, refer- it's a common term in the Psalms, and specifically in the penitent Psalms. I wondered how many times this might recur, and I found it in the first five. That is, five of the seven penitent Psalms all make reference to a disease, a malady, a brokenness, and a degenerate state of bones, as it were. So, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, uh, Psalm 32, 3, Psalm 38, 3, Psalm 102, 3, and 5. And here, Psalm 51, 8, 
all make reference to bones as they relate to mankind. And what is this Hebrew word etzem referring to? Well, we see in the associations and connotations, the context of the word and where it's used, that the author refers to the entire person, his constitution, his whole being, his support network, his uh, uh, bodily frame, his strength, his self, the substance, and his life. Kind of maybe a, a parallel for us in modern parlance would be our, the core of our being or uh, in the inner man or to the depths of my soul. This is the idea of bones, etzem, as it's used in these psalms of penitence. They are, that is to say, the seat of disease and pain associated with Job-like anguish. O Lord, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, or I cry out all day long because my bones are diseased or disabled or crushed or broken. Over and again, you find this. It's like the anguish cry of Job, who in the physical pictured what the author means to convey in the spiritual. It's the seat of disease or pain that takes over the constitution of a person. And the author is crying out that salvation for him would include a knitting together and a healing, therefore, of his inner man, of his soul, of the core of his being, that his bones that were once broken could be mended and rejoice. I would remind you in closing, and maybe final or second to final passage this morning to turn you to, uh, turn with me to Psalm 22. I'd remind you another use of this word at some bones in the Psalms. And this is more directly, uh, or and this is directly associated with the Messianic Psalms. The same term is used with reference to the Messiah that is used with reference to the sinner, yet in a different sense. This is instructive for us. Psalm 22.14 Again, this is the first person, the Messiah, prophetically of the Messiah. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Later, verse 16, second half, they have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. These are references to brokenness. Our Messiah shared in something of the anguish of soul that we experienced. Yet there was an essential difference. As it says in Hebrews 5, that Christ is a sufficient mediator who with loud cries, tears, intercessions, and prayers offered before the Lord can be a sufficient mediator and high priest for us having been beset with all the weaknesses of human being yet without sin, the weaknesses of the human condition yet without sin, we have a picture of bones as it refers to the Messiah and as it refers to the sinner. That is to say, the sinless anguish of Christ's suffering restores the broken bones of sinners to rejoicing. Christ suffered. His bones were out of joint. In His uh, in his passion, in the cruel 
and unjust torture that he received in his death on the cross. They were out of joint. You could count them all. Yet what do the scriptures also say in Psalm 34? Not a one of them was broken. Though Jesus was submitted to the weakness of human flesh, he was sinless. Psalm 34, 20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And so in these pictures, we have a picture not only, we have illustration not only of our weakness, of our frailty and our sin, but we have hope of the reconstitution of man, of the rebuilding of our bones, of the core of our being, because Christ, who has made sin for us, was uh, the sacrifice, sufficient sacrifice for us, was the champion of death, hell, and the grave. And not a single one of his bones was broken. The fulfillment of this text, of course, is in John 19. John 19, 31, we read, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and they, they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And as a brief aside, remember Psalm 22, my heart is melted like wax within me. I have pierced me. My hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. Uh, Verse 35, again, John 19. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Verse 36, for these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The reconstitution of man and the restructuring of his nature and the recreation, the rebirth, the newness of our restored life in Christ is through the brokenness of our Messiah. The sinless anguish of Christ's suffering restores the broken bones of the lost sinner. John 19, 31-37, Psalm 51, 18-19 both conclude and fulfill this psalm Very briefly, at the end of Psalm 51, there is a shift from the one to the many, if you will. David has been very personal, and he has explained in very uh, contrite and vulnerable terms the condition of his own soul. But the last two verses say, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. And here in the closing words of Psalm 51, we have an expectation that restoration for David would include the company of the body of Christ, of the people of God. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. David moves from an individual confession to an expectation to be included in the fellowship of the beloved. The conclusion of Psalm 51 addresses not just the individual, but the many. The individual in penitent faith, that is, confessing our sins and trusting Christ to restore us and to save us, is restored not only 
restored from the punishment that his sin deserved, but he is restored unto fellowship with the body of Christ, fellowship with the assembly of the beloved, congregation, communion with the living church of Jesus Christ. This is realized exclusively under Christ's atoning blood. And he, like David, David uh, explains in this way that just as he confessed his sin individually, he can then be restored by God's grace to the corporate. So Jesus himself was the once and for all Lamb of God that was sacrificed for the many. And so in the close of Psalm 51 and in its new covenant fulfillment in John 19 and the rest of Scripture, we see the glorious hope of true penitent faith, repentance, and brokenness before the Lord. It is restoration unto fellowship with each other and reconciliation with an almighty God. Praise to the name of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice and Lord. Let us close in prayer this morning. O Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that within the pages of Holy Scripture, you have buried riches that are too great for us to plumb. But Lord, we pray that you would give us capacity to, to uh, per, pursue them with all our heart and soul and strength. We pray, Lord, that you would give us, Lord Jesus, the ability to comprehend the love of Christ, to know its breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love that surpasses all understanding that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. The last song we sang, this worship service, there was a shift. We sang, I exalt thee, I exalt thee. And Lord, now we see that because you have changed our hearts individually, we can now sing, we exalt thee, we exalt thee. We now have fellowship with each other and with the Holy Trinity forever for those who are in Christ this morning. Father, if there are any here who lie under blood guiltiness, separate from the people of God, with only one sacrifice sufficient to save them, and have not appropriated Christ, if you have not drawn them to yourself, repentance and faith, I pray this morning they would hear the anguish of the psalmist and that they would confess their sin and place faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, that they might be renewed, reborn, restored. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen.